From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, poet George Bilguer, appearing April 26th at the McConnell Arts Center as part of the Worthington Library's Here and Now program, stops by to discuss his work and how a poet can get on Prairie Home Companion with Garrison Keillor. Also, OSU alumnus Leslie Goodwin talks to comic writer Rob Delaney about being a humor writer and gaining 22,000 followers on Twitter. Stay tuned. From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. With me today is Dr. George Bill Gare, who is a host of Cleveland's Radio's Wordplay and a professor of English at John Carroll University. He will be in Columbus on April 26th as part of the Worthington Library's Here and Now series at the McConnell Arts Center. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Dr. George Bilger. Hey, it's great to be here, Doug. Well, what can attendees expect to hear at the Here and Now event on April 26th? What game are you bringing to them? Well, it's it's been billed as a poetry reading, so I, I am going to read poetry. I think my readings might stand a little bit outside of the, the poetry reading norm in that, um, I don't know, I guess they, they tend to be, my feeling is audiences usually go to poetry readings um, feeling a little bit, especially if they've been dragged there under duress, like somebody has dragged his wife or some wife has dragged her husband. It's kind of against their will. Um, they're kind of thinking this is going to be like going to church, you know, it, I'm, I won't enjoy it, but it'll be good for me. So <laughs> I like I, I like to ambush audiences by um, reading a lot of poems that I, I think I hope are, are pretty funny while at the same time um, being serious. And I think the key to a good reading is, uh, you know, you cannot lay on the dark poetic angst too heavily. Uh, audiences get restive very quickly. You know things are going wrong, and nowadays you could tell when things were going wrong when people simply uh, fell asleep in front of you. Mm-hmm. But uh, nowadays, uh, people's heads droop down, and it looks like they're sleeping, but in fact they're texting, and that's when you know you've lost them. So there's got to be a little comic relief. Okay, uh, a little comic re- relief, or possibly some sort of shielding over the venue so that people can't text. Those are the other areas that you're working on? Yeah, that's that's a good idea, too. We also uh, lock and bolt the doors so there's no escape. So don't even think about it. Okay, that's excellent. Wikipedia, as you can tell, we have an extensive research staff, makes the bold claim that you have a PhD in contemporary British and American poetry from the University of Denver. Yep. My question is, why poetry? What got you into poetry and to pursue a PhD in it? A simple story, really. Uh, one magic word, chemistry. I was a pre-med major when I was an undergrad uh, way, way back at the University of California, Riverside. And um, I really was struggling with chemistry. And uh, my advisor said, why don't you just you're going to fail it. Why don't you just drop it and the next term take only chemistry and one kind of, you know, bonehead, easy, no stress class. And he suggested a creative writing class. So I took a, I took this class and, uh, uh, the whole, not only had, I, I had never read poetry, really, I'd read a lot of novels. Um, first day of class, the instructor comes in and the poem he brought was a poem by, um, I, the guy I think is Ohio's greatest writer, James Wright. This is California, but it was a poem by James Wright called Autumn Comes to Martin's Ferry, Ohio, which is an, an amazing poem about 
high school football in the fall and how important it is to the people in the, the little um, Rust Belt towns who have very little else to, to cheer for or care about. And I, my experience with poetry up to that time had been, you know, Keats, Shakespeare, Wordsworth, um, a bunch of, uh, you know, dead European writers. And reading a poem that was about the world that, that I knew in a language that I knew uh, it seemed to me like every word on the page was was uh, etched in electricity. And not only that, but I, taking that class also brought me into the uh, English uh, lit culture. In biology, you would sit in the library at midnight with a circle of other people, you know, memorizing data and charts and tables. In poetry, you were at a bar somewhere reading poems with lots of interesting women. So, I mean, there was no going back. Mm -hmm. I was destroyed by chemistry. So poetry has led you down a pathway to late nights at bars. Dissipation and corruption is where it's <laughs> led me, but I'm not complaining. Is that something you share with your students at John Carroll? <laughs> that that's the point of the class? Well, you know, I do get them. One requirement of the class is that uh, they go to a couple of we we get out we get off the uh, get out of the university, and go to at least two or three local readings in the city of Cleveland. You know, at the little pubs and cantinas, um, which might in many ways resemble um, you know beat poetry hangouts of the fifties. And yes, there have even been uh, bongo drums, but you get the students away from the text in the classroom um, and out into. Uh, you know, some of these local venues where we've got some really good local poets performing their stuff. And suddenly the students realize that poetry is something alive, not something that's just uh, stuck in a textbook and you're studying for, you know, for your exam. So, yeah, I try to uh, create a student populace that is also uh, dissolute. Okay, good, good. To introduce <laughs> them to the, uh, the lifestyle of, say, Edgar Allan Poe, things along those lines. That's what you're Edgar going Allan for. Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Bukowski, Bukowski you know. Right, yeah. So let's pick up on uh, one of those threads that you were talking about and where the big money is in going on, a, say, a Prairie Home Companion. Yeah, that was kind of a career thrill for me just a couple of months ago. It does sound like a, a, a career thrill. Tell me about being on that show and uh, the impact it had on you as a poet. Well, I don't know if, you're, uh, if your listeners know a Prairie Home Companion, Garrison Keillor's uh, radio invention that's been on uh, national public radio for over 30 years. And, uh, you know, the show's on every Saturday at six o'clock, then it repeats Sunday mornings. And uh, I've been listening to that show since I lived in Denver as a grad student. And I'd listen, you know, almost probably twice a month, I would, I've heard that show and that voice, the voice of Garrison Keillor, for the last three decades. And 15 years ago, he began doing a a daily radio show on National Public Radio called The Writer's Almanac. It's on every day. It's five minutes long, and about 300 NPR affiliates across the country carry it. And if you live in a city, if you're fortunate enough to live in a city that, that runs this show, as you're driving to work at 8 in the morning, you might hear The Writer's Almanac. And in those five minutes, Keeler will uh, tell you what happened on this literary date in history, uh, you know, today's the birthday of uh, Emily Dickinson or something like that, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And then he will read a poem by an American poet, usually a living, breathing American poet. Not always, but uh, 
he will pick someone, you know, from, from the great mass of poets out there and read one of their poems. And, you know, if a typical struggling poet, your audience is typically at a bookstore. There are five people in the audience and you're, you're reading to five people and a distant espresso machine. <laughs> and so suddenly you've got an audience of about three or four million people live. And uh, it's, it's really amazing uh, to get this kind of audience and this kind of feedback. So about five years ago, Keeler started reading some of my poems on this show, The Writer's Almanac. And, uh, you know, suddenly um, book sales were, you know, out the roof, and I was getting all these offers to give readings hither and thither. And uh, he had read about 25 of my poems on the show, The Writer's Almanac, over the years. And then he was, but I had never met him. And last October, he came through Cleveland, where I live, to do a one-man show. And he contacted me and said, why don't we meet? So uh, after he did the show, I had a chance to, to meet Garrison Keeler, which was a real, a, an absolute thrill. I mean, what a, a, a wonderful and very intimidating person he is. And we sat down and chatted for about 30 minutes uh, backstage about poetry and this and that. And then he said, again, this was October, he said, well, why don't you come to New York and do Prairie Home Companion in December? So obviously I said, well, I'll think about it. And I know I got down on my knees and I said, yes, Mr. Keeler, thank you. Thank you. And uh, uh, my wife and I went out to New York and did the show December 10th. And I got a chance to, you know, work with Keeler for a couple of days in rehearsal and meet all the, the players, you know, the, the cast and crew of A Prairie Home Companion. And then the show went out live that evening in New York. And um, I started getting barrages of emails from people who had listened and liked the show. And the result is uh, that I've, you know, it, it's been a life-changing event in terms of the numbers of um, bookings I've gotten uh, for giving readings around the country. Um, so, yeah, it's, it was an astonishing thing. You just cannot imagine uh, when you're starting out in this modest craft of poetry that you, you would ever get a, a nationwide audience of 5 million people listening to you read your little verses. So mm -hmm. I am grateful. Okay. Well, that, that sounds like a great experience and you didn't fall off the stage. No one uh, argued with the poem through anything, <laughs> said that you'd misinterpreted your own poem or anything. That is, that is excellent. Actually stuff. something, something kind of funny did happen. Um, no, I didn't fall off the stage. I, uh, you know, I, I managed not to screw up, but uh, I read a poem about, um, shoveling snow and the dangers of shoveling snow and it's uh, you want to hear it sure it's quite short snow a heavy snow and men my age all over the city are having heart attacks in their driveways dropping their nice new shovels with the ergonomic handles that finally did them no good gray-headed men who meant no harm who abided by the rules and worked hard for modest rewards are slipping softly from their mortgages, falling out of their marriages. How gracefully they swoon, that lovely old-fashioned word, from grandkids, pension plans, vacations in Florida. They should have known better than to shovel snow at their age. If only they'd heeded the sensible advice of their wives and hired a snow removal service. But there's more to life than merely being sensible. Sometimes a man must take up his shovel 
and head out alone into the snow. So I read that poem, and it went over really well with the audience. It was winter, and people had been doing a lot of snow shoveling. But I got an email uh, the next day from a guy who said, um, Dear Mr. Bill Gare, I listened to your reading on A Prairie Home Companion last night about shoveling snow. Perhaps you find this, the, the dangers of shoveling snow, perhaps you find this amusing. But in fact, three years ago, my father suffered a fatal heart attack while shoveling snow. I wish in the future you would be more sensitive to those of us who have had personal losses due to snow shoveling related accidents. So I wrote him back and said, thank you for raising my awareness of snow shoveling related accidents. And uh, I was kind of reformed by that. So I want to send this out as this is kind of like a public service announcement to your listeners. Mm-hmm. Be careful when you're out there shoveling snow. Right. And the fact that you just read that poem again really <laughs> demonstrates the, uh, the <laughs> deep feeling of remorse you have and, and well earned. I am remorseful. So. I'm very sorry. And maybe you might want to just go go ahead and delete the first part of that poem where the heart attack happens. <laughs> but, but, you know, no matter what you say on the radio, somebody's going to get mad at you, right? I mean, you could say it's a nice day today right. and someone will call in angrily and say it's not that nice well so. actually you hope for that because no one has called in to complain about us yet and 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 i feel sad about that <laughs> three years no complaints um you know, well we, let me reiterate i do not find snow shoveling related accidents to be in any way funny okay so all right although i i found the poem to be funny so i you know <laughs> I, I apologize for being an insensitive well, I want to thank you very much, George Bilger, for being here on Writer's Talk. Uh, I really appreciate your telling us about poetry. And uh, we look forward to you being in Columbus on April 26th at the Worthington Library's Here and Now series at the McConnell Arts Center, which will not be bolted and locked. Um, we can guarantee people. And you will still probably get cell coverage depending upon your cell company. So, yeah, texting texting is available. Texting is available during and, uh, and after the, uh, the event. And, and, encouraged. and encouraged. Texting is encouraged right, by, during the, by the person who, Except by the person that made you go to right. the In event. Right, in fact, um, that, that I might be texting during the reading. So. Right, yeah, well, one, one can only expect it. All right, well, thank you very much. Doug, this was, it was a real pleasure, and thank you. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. George Beguer will appear on April 26th as part of the Worthington Library's Here and Now program. And you can visit www.writerstalk.org to learn more about that visit. Now, Leslie Goodwin will talk to comic writer Rob Delaney. From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, I'm Leslie Goodwin. Rob Delaney is originally from Boston and attended New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. He performs stand-up regularly at the top comedy clubs across the United States. Late last year, Comedy Central announced a pilot for a variety show called At Rob Delaney, which is also his Twitter handle. And Rob has built up a very large following on Twitter, over 350,000 as of today, so he must be doing something right. Thank you for being here, Rob. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us about when you started your Twitter account and what caused you, you know, just to start using Twitter as an outlet and how you kind of developed into this? Uh, sure, yeah. I, uh, I started a little over three years ago on Twitter, and I think like most people, I'd heard of it, and I thought, 
that sounds stupid. Why would I ever do that? You know, people, it was first billed to something where you would announce what you'd eaten for lunch or what you thought about right. what you had eaten for lunch and then later, God forbid, a picture of your lunch. <laughs> and so I had no interest in doing that. Um, I'd rather just eat the lunch, enjoy it in a dark room with no one watching. And uh, But then I was in a hotel room in Minneapolis. I had just done a show and Louis C.K., the comedian, announced on Facebook that he had joined Twitter. And I thought, well, wait a second. If Louis C.K. is on here, I should check it out. And so mm -hmm. I joined. And uh, rather quickly, I, along with all the other comedians I knew, realized, hey, this is better for jokes. And uh, it forces you to create compact little stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be able to elicit a laugh from people in 140 characters or less, is a challenge and it's a fun one. So I just sort of thought of it as kind of like a virtual uh, joke gym, so to speak. And uh, I tried to keep to a minimum the talking back and forth with people uh, and the self-promotion and just sort of let it speak for itself as a place that you could go to hopefully laugh. Would you say that your tweets are kind of indicative of your stand-up routine? Is it a way for you to try out? your jokes ahead of time? or Yes, it is. Uh, and I certainly do use it for self-promotion, but that's a, a secondary yeah. uh, thing. Uh, for me, primarily, it's about telling a joke and hopefully having people respond in a positive manner. Um, but yeah, I'll think up something, and if it seems to resonate with people on Twitter you know, at 11.30 a.m. when I post it, then I'm much more likely to try it at 9 p.m. when I'm on stage mm -hmm. and stretch it out. However, on Twitter, uh, since I'm aware that even I myself use it as a narcotic to, avo to avoid things happening during the day, I'll mm, look at my phone and see, find a little funny thing rather than talk face to face mm -hmm. with a human being. And, you know, I mean, like, now I don't even eat food while just eating it. I don't like the lunch I mentioned earlier. Now I'm buried. I f I'm like, did I just eat three sandwiches? Yes, I did. I didn't notice because I was yeah. on Twitter. So. I'm very much you know, like a drug pusher in that I'm like trying to give people the hot, you know, uncut jokes mm -hmm. so that they can not pay attention to their families and stuff like that. And I say that jokingly, but it is true. We do have to, it's a double-edged sword big mm -hmm. time. For me though, it's mostly a single-edged sword in that I am using it to uh, get people for more familiar with my comedy. And then the other question you asked, do I use it, or rather, is my stand-up like what you see on Twitter? I think you can tell they're from the same mind, but when I'm on stage, it's me saying what I really think and feel. It's a much more human you know, experience. Uh, whereas on Twitter, I'll say things that I don't even believe just to get a laugh, you know, because and now I get to the point where after having done it for a while with 140 characters, I'll challenge myself to like even have like multiple points of view or like have like two twists in a tweet, you know, so now I try to just do bonkers stuff because I have to continue to enjoy myself on it. So just being like set up punchline is even less interesting to me now. Yeah, you are on many publications the funniest on Twitter lists, including the 2012 Comedy Awards, which people can vote mm -hmm. for online now. What has that recognition from those publications? Have you noticed how that has changed any opportunities or anything like that? Well, I've got to imagine that that coupled with the, like, let's imagine the number of followers you have is like box office and then those awards are like good reviews or something you know like i suppose the best thing would be to have you know something like a i don't know a brave heart so i i guess 
it's wonderful to get recognition, certainly, you know, it, it, of tremendous value to me just as a person to hear someone say, hey, that's funny, and an award or whatever is a, a, a version of that. And then also it's great that like, I've never been to Columbus before, but uh, my shows tonight are sold out, you know, and that's that I think is as a result of the large number of followers. So, so they're both fantastic. I mean, at the end of the day, it feels just as good to make 10 people laugh as it does to make, you know, 400 people mm -hmm. laugh or whatever, if it's a genuine belly, at, at least yeah. as long as at least three of those 10 people they hurt their stomachs laughing and are like, oh, why did you do that to me? Yeah. Then that makes me happy. And Comedy Central, I believe it is, has signed on for a pilot. What is the synopsis of that? Classic talk variety show structure. It's not about Twitter, but it's kind of fueled by Twitter. So rather than Jay Leno being like, hey, did you see what you saw? On the, well, you know, see that on the news today? I'm like, hey, on Twitter, we saw this, you know. So one of the first stories we talk about is an actual quote, lowercase w, war that took place on Twitter between uh, NATO and the Taliban's official Twitterers. And, you know, then we'll branch out from there and move into skits and interviews and field pieces and stuff. So a very familiar, recognizable structure, just perhaps slightly more modern. Is there an air date set for that yet? I think I can say at this point, it did not get picked up by Comedy okay. Central. Okay. And uh, this that's an exclusive to you. I haven't said that to anybody. Okay. Uh, but, uh, and I found that out a few weeks ago. And I was sad for maybe three hours about that, but then I went right back out on the road working on my book. So, uh, plus you have to make a lot of failed pilots. Mm -hmm. It's not my first, so, but I had learned a lot making it. It was a lot of fun mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, really, really great. And as you just mentioned, you have a book deal with Random House. Yeah. Can you just please tell us about that and what we can expect from it or what you're expecting from it. Oh, sure, yeah. And it's with uh, Spiegel and Grau, which is an imprint at Random House. And I only specify because they're, they're so cool. The books that they have are, are just magnificent. They saw my uh, one-man show that I did in New York, which was called Naked and Bloody. And uh, that was about a little over 10 years ago. I had been working to uh, quit drinking working to quit drinking. Nine to five, I would clock in and, and work at not drinking, uh, by drinking. And uh, I was in a car accident for which I was totally responsible. I drove into a building uh, in Los Angeles. Nobody else was involved in the accident, but I was in a blackout and I drove into the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Wow. Okay. And I broke both my arms. This wrist was rebuilt and my legs were damaged as well. So I was in jail in a wheelchair and then had surgeries that followed and I then was sentenced to uh, rehab, then a sober living halfway house. And I quit drinking at that time uh, once I realized that it would be fatal for, if not just me, I suspected it would be for me, but when I knew, wow, you know, I'm operating a motor vehicle with no consciousness, I could easily kill people. And I didn't want to do that. I um, subscribe to a no killing people sort of theory. Okay. And I try to put it into practice. So all that stuff that happened in that time uh, was a lot of it was funny. And so that sort of would sneak into my stand up years later. And I thought, people would really laugh when I talked about that stuff. So I thought, all right, I'll do, I'm gonna do a show about it. So I had an hour long show that I did, which probably had the same like laugh per minute ratio of regular standup. It just happened to be one narrative tale. So they saw that and then they saw my Twitter 
And then I had also been writing for some time uh, for Vice Magazine at that point. I was writing a weekly column. And based on all that, I think they just said, hey, write a book. And I was like, about what? And I said, whatever you want. And so it's kind of a memoir. It's almost like a, a writer that I enjoyed a lot when I was, started reading him in high school was Henry Miller. And he wrote uh, the Rosie Crucifixion trilogy, which was the books Sexus, Plexus, and Nexus. And there, it's you know thousands of pages when you add it up. And they were really great. And he, they were autobiographical. But if he wanted to, he would go off for 20 pages about like Knut Hamsen, the Norwegian writer, and just talk about that. So I just loved the approach that he took to writing. He was like, I'm going to tell you about me, but if I get bored with me, I'm going to talk about other things. Yeah. So I'm doing that uh, because who cares? I'm 35, which is relatively young, too young to be writing a memoir, and um, I'm not famous, you know, so the, again, that disqualifies me for memoir, but I did have the good fortune to go through some some pretty like acutely interesting stuff and then, you know, sort of refract that through the hopefully funny mind of a of a regular writer and that's the thing. So it's kind of like a cross between the Rosie Crucifixion trilogy and like a a politician's book that they put out a couple years before they run for a big office because <laughs> you know like Barack Obama or Mitt Romney or they yeah. put out their books and you're like, come on, man. You're just trying to foist your little manifesto yeah. on us. So for me, I'm trying to do the same scumbag thing that they're trying to do, but uh, with a uh, comedic point of view, rather than me trying to wedge my energy policy into uh, some weird right. anecdote about my grandfather. <laughs> I mean, what I'm doing is just saying like, here's, you know, what I think about ham, you know, or whatever. So it's sort of, that's, uh, I realize I, spoke roughly uh, as long as the book itself will be about the book just now, but that's I thought might be of use for this particular program yeah. if I explained. About how much do you have? I'm almost ready? done. Really? Um, I would say or roughly five-sixths done, or you know, 55,000 words out of 70,000 ordered. Okay. Please, no math people do that math. I'm calling it five sixth, okay. which means that it is because it right it's my now, book. So, yeah. Don't try. I'm going to keep talking so you don't think. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what has the timeline been so far for your writing? Have you just been able to sit down and churn out, you know, 50 pages at a time, or has it been many, many months of many, Absolutely many not. Uh, basically, a little over a year ago, in the space of a week, in literally a seven day week, not like, um, you know, people will be like a week, but they meant three months. In Within one seven day week period, I got the offer for the book. A couple days later, my son was born, my first child. Oh. And then a couple days later, uh, the Comedy Central pilot sold. Wow. So the Comedy Central pilot, I had to work on that first. So uh, the bulk of the writing uh, has been done within the last three or four months. And yeah, I mean, to get really specific about it, We've talked about Twitter, so I'm online a lot. Too much, certainly, to my own detriment. I mean, I've gained weight. Like, I, it's, and I only say that just because, like, why not get into the nitty gritty if we're really talking about writing a book? You might get fat, uh, or the internet can make you fat, is what I'm saying. Uh, it's, or it's made me fat. To back up a little bit, though, the internet can be a real problem for writers. That's not a newsflash. So I use uh, Freedom, the $10 app, which turns off your internet. And if you want to turn your internet back on, you have to turn your computer off, then reboot it. So you really feel like a scumbag <laughs> if you want to like just check, check what's Twitter. going on. Yeah. yeah. So, 
So I do that, and then I use another wonderful program that uh, the British uh, television writer and producer Graham Linehan turned me on to. It's called Write or Die. Now this oh. one, whoo -hoo, it's hot stuff. And if you use it with uh, freedom, you can write, write a book in 20 minutes. Um, basically, yeah, like, you know, November, what do they call that? NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing. <laughs> Please, you won't even need the months. With this, you basically write in like a flash, or no, an Adobe box that like pops up in your computer. And uh, if you stop moving your fingers, the screen starts to turn red. If you don't com commence moving your fingers a few seconds later, it'll start to delete your work wow. from where you've written. Oh, I love it. It makes it like a fun game. I'm a big fan of that. So anyway, I say that because like I have to sit down, like I have to like go like do a few yeah. push-ups, like yell at the screen and then yeah. go because it's very easy for me to, uh, and I know I'm not alone in this, get me going, hey, lol, let's party. But to get down and get started, you know, I'm as bad as the worst mm -hmm. there is with that. So I have to trick myself. I have accountability partners. I'm a terrible person when it comes to setting up own personal deadlines mm -hmm. and work. To the point that as much as I've enjoyed periods of writing the book, sometimes it's torture, but sometimes it's a lot of fun. As soon as I'm done, I'm immediately writing a television script with a partner uh, because I want to get out and like see people. Rob, thank you again for sitting down with us today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guests, poet George Bilger, who will be in town on April 26th with Worthington Libraries Here and Now program, and comic writer Rob Delaney. Thanks to my guest interviewer, Leslie Goodwin. Join us next week for OSU student Byron Edgington and his discussion with Thomas Barden, an author who will appear at the Ohio and a Book Festival on May 12th. Barden will discuss John Steinbeck and Steinbeck in Vietnam, Dispatches from the War. Also, amazingly funny blogger Jenny Larson will discuss her new book, Let's Pretend This Never Happened. That's next time on Writer's Talk. Until then, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing.